Okay. So Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, and they were crying out loud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And this initial state uh, statement um, about these men is actually pretty stunning because in the book of Matthew, these are the first characters that we meet that recognize Jesus' identity as the son of David. But the craziest thing is, the thing that should be most shocking to us is not only does he recognize that Jesus is the son, they recognize that Jesus is the son of David, but they can't even see the guy. They can't see Jesus. And perhaps their, their disability was, was an advantage to them. You know, oftentimes people with disabilities who lose their sight or lose their hearing, their other senses sometimes are amplified because of sensory deprivation. And perhaps their inability to see Jesus, to see him physically, may have actually given them a special advantage in recognizing Jesus' true identity. And on the other hand, I think uh, for those of us that have all of our senses intact. You ever wonder if if being able to see distracts you from what is really real? You, you ever wonder if being blessed with sight and smell and, and hearing and all these things, really what it does is allows us to be prejudiced about what we see or, or, or to approach things with our preconceived notions or, or be distracted by all the glittery things that are in front of us or sometimes even just be simply prideful because we can see. Sometimes we boast in our ability, and that boasting results in a blindness. So the theme of sight is crucial to this entire passage. And not just physical sight, but we're going to see here in this story spiritual sight. An attribute that not everyone possesses, but that these men do possess. I just reread uh, the very last novel in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. You guys read Chronicles of Narnia? I mean, when you were kids, I reread it if you haven't. They're fantastic. I, I just read, reread The Last Battle. And in the story, there's a group of stubborn dwarves. And they get shoved without warning and without, against their wills, they get thrown into Aslan's country. And Aslan's country is really kind of this metaphor of it's heaven. It's the, the perfect place. It's a broad and beautiful place. It's well lit. It's warm. There's abundance. There's food everywhere. And it's food that tastes like no food you've ever tasted. It's a, it's a land of peace and joy and plenty. And these dwarves are stuck sitting on the ground in a circle because they believe that they've been shoved into this dark and dank stable, a cold place where they can't see and they're surrounded with muck and mud and they've been abandoned and they're being persecuted by hostile enemies. They can't see where they're at. They're blind to it, but they're willfully blind to where they are. And in their pride and their stubbornness, they refuse to believe the truth. They, they refuse to believe in what is around them and they're unable and unwilling to see where they really are. And I think this is a, a, a great picture of often where we are, where people are spiritually blind 
not able to see Jesus for who he is. These dwarves are fools, and as a result, they miss out on what is freely available to them. Now, unlike Lewis's dwarves, though, the blind men in this story see Jesus for who he is, even though they can't see him. They have no physical sight, but Jesus recognizes that they have spiritual sight. He, he, he recognizes their faith as their sight. So the, the story continues in verse 28. It says, when he entered the house, so, so he'd gone on. They'd been crying out. He didn't answer him anything. He goes into the house, probably his home or the home he was staying at in Capernaum. It says, the blind men came to him in the house, and Jesus said to them, I love this question, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they hadn't even said what they wanted. All they said so far that they'd asked for mercy. I think Jesus had assumed that they wanted to be healed. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And isn't that what faith is? That we believe that Jesus is able. That Jesus can and we can't. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done for you, And their eyes were opened. For Jesus to say, according to your faith, be it done to you. This doesn't mean that it was the strength of their faith that impressed Jesus. We saw this last week in the, in the story of the, of the woman who was healed. It wasn't the strength of her faith. It wasn't the strength of their faith that impressed Jesus. Rather, it was the object of their faith. Jesus as the son of David. That's who they believed Jesus to be in their hearts. Their faith saw who he was. So Jesus wasn't saying to them, if your faith is strong, then you'll regain your sight. But if your faith is weak, then you'll stay blind. That's not what Jesus is saying. That isn't even, uh, that isn't even part of the gospel here. The, the point is, is that faith is, is planted. It's, it's, It's zeroed in on an object, and the object was Jesus. So what he's saying is, your faith is what truly sees me for who I am. Your faith sees me for who I am, even though you're physically blind. And in accordance with that faith, in accordance with the spiritual sight you have, may your faith become a physical reality. So so like he did for the paralytic in in the beginning of chapter 9, like he did for the bleeding woman in the story prior to this, Jesus lines up their physical bodies with their spiritual reality. He aligns their bodies with their hearts. So now these man's eyes look like the eyes of their hearts. They can see. I'm going to go to the next story. After Jesus admonishes these men, I love this piece at the end of the story where he admonishes them, and the, the language there is almost like he yells at them. He says, don't tell anybody. See that nobody hears about this. And how do, you, how do you not tell people? Like, weren't you blind yesterday? Oh, no, that wasn't me. It's like, you can't not tell people. You know, so they go from there, and you can just imagine they're, they're proclaiming it, and they're talking about it wherever they go, and he tells them not to, and they can't not. So he admonishes them to silence and sends them away. But then immediately he's confronted with another opportunity for healing. It says, as they were going away, as these men were exiting the house, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, couldn't speak. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, 
I love this. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. You see the theme of sight continuing through this story. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, the story is pretty straightforward, but I want you, what I want you to see is, is the connection there to sight. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And the word for, for seen there means for something to become visible, to appear or to be revealed. So never, they're saying, never has anything like this been revealed to Israel. Now think of a moment, for a moment, of Israel's 2,000 year history before that. There were some pretty big things revealed to Israel. Like God showing up in Egypt, the ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, bringing them to Sinai, coming down on Sinai and giving them the law, um, giving them the land. All these amazing things God had done the whole Old Testament. And these people have the audacity to say, never has any such revelation been given to Israel than there is in this moment. Their history, their identity has been wrapped up in God's great revelation to them in the Old Testament. And when they see this man's mouth open, they, they exclaim, nothing has ever been this greatly revealed. So what Jesus is doing then is opening eyes to see him as the fulfillment of all that God has done for his people in history. Opening their eyes to see that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the climax of all that. And then opening their mouths like he opened the mouth of this mute man to proclaim exactly who he is. So Zach read this morning from Isaiah 35, which foretells about Jesus' coming. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus comes, and he does all of those things. We have people who can't not tell the story who can't not speak of the glory that's now been revealed in Jesus. So so in these eight verses, we have a story of Jesus healing by restoring sight. It's closely connected with another story of of an exorcism healing with Jesus restoring speech. And what we see here is that Jesus' ministries as both healer and exorcist are connected. His healing work, if you will, is a full frontal assault on the kingdom of darkness. These these stories are connected in that way, that, that Jesus has come and he's unshackling men and women from the oppression of the evil spiritual powers who want to keep us in bondage, who want to keep us in darkness. Jesus has come to unleash us to set us free, to open our eyes, to open our mouths so that we can see and we can dance and we can praise him. Now, if that's what Jesus is doing, if he's he's coming and attacking and undoing the works of the kingdom of darkness, it's crazy that the Pharisees would say something like this. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. You see just how ironic that response is. Like, That's exactly the opposite of what he is doing. And so there's this obstinate spiritual blindness in the Pharisees who do not see Jesus for who he is. 
Their accusation is simply absurd. But they'll continue to press it. They'll press it in chapter 10. They'll bring it back around in chapter 12. And we'll look that look at that when we get there. Well, that's the story for this morning. And I could end the sermon right there. We all go home and have lunch. But what I want to do for the remainder of the sermon, because I think this is crucial and important, is to take a deep dive and explore one of the the most key, one of the most important aspects of this passage, and that's the recognition of these blind men of Jesus as the son of David. They're the first to call him the son of David, but they're not the last. This is a, a title that is used for Jesus in Matthew nine nine times. Jesus is called in Matthew the son of David. So I think simply exploring how Matthew uses this title will give us a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and the work of Jesus, the work that he is doing here in opposing the kingdom of darkness in a way, I think, that will clarify our own sight, strengthen our own faith, Bring us freedom, bring us joy, and cause us to worship even more deeply. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to ask you to walk through Matthew with me. I encourage you to open your Bible and follow along, not just listen and, 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 and believe everything I say or argue with me in your head, but actually let's look at the passage, let's look at the Scripture together. And there are Bibles in your pews in front of you as well. As we go through this, we're going to look at Jesus, the Son of David, throughout the book of Matthew. So the first time this takes place is going back to the very beginning of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So so you wonder how important this title of, of Jesus being the son of David, how important is that? Well, it's important enough for Matthew to actually kick off the book with it. So, so Matthew, as he's thinking about Jesus, his king, his savior, his lord, who he knows is God, when he thinks about Jesus automatically this is the title he goes to. This is how he starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who? The son of David. The son of Abraham. And then he goes on to give the most, one of the most exciting parts of the Bible, the genealogies, which I love genealogies, because what they do is they show where Jesus fits into the story. Matthew places Jesus in this broader biblical story. And if you go on to to read or study this genealogy, you'll see that David himself actually fits as the central character. He is mentioned more often than anyone else in this genealogy. Jesus only gets three mentions in his own genealogy. David gets five. Okay? In in verse 1, we see it there. In verse 6, he's mentioned twice. In verse 17, he's mentioned another couple times. Why? Because Matthew is trying to show Jesus' connection as the descendant, the rightful heir of King David, the one who is promised to sit on his throne forever. That's who Jesus is, the Messiah, the promised coming king. We've already looked at Son of David in Matthew 9. If you pass there and go to Matthew chapter 12, we see the next mention of this title, the son of David. It occurs just three chapters later in a story that clearly echoes this morning's passage, chapter 12, verses 22 to 23. See if you can pick out how this passage is like our story this morning. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. 
See any similarities yet? <laughs> and he healed him so that the man both spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and they said, Can this be the son of David? So something about Jesus opening up eyes and casting out demons and opening up mouths clued them in to his identity as the son, son of David. And, and here in this story, we see all three of the ailments from our chapter 9 story. We've got blindness, we've got mutinous, and we've got demon oppression all packed into one man. This story parallels today's story also in the response from the Pharisees. So beginning of the very next verse, verse 24, the, the Pharisees blatantly answer the question that the crowd asks. So the crowd asks, could this be the son of David? And the Pharisees say, no, this guy's working for Satan. This guy's working for the devil. This guy's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So they answer the question, accusing Jesus of being in league with the prince of demons. So we see again an opposition from the religious leaders here. Moving on to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to touch on these quickly, so bear with me. Matthew 15 is the next incident. Again, there's parallels here. You can't miss them. It's a little bit longer, so bear with me. In Jesus chapter 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You see the parallels there? But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus and his disciples here are in a pagan region. They've gone outside of the boundaries of Israel to Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus and his disciples meet there a Gentile woman. We shouldn't be surprised that they meet a Gentile in a Gentile area. And like the two blind men, she recognizes that Jesus is the son of David. So here's a out, complete outsider, a foreigner, a pagan, realizing, recognizing who Jesus is. And like the blind men, begging him for mercy. And for a time, this is crazy to me, she's ignored by Jesus. So much so that his aggravated disciples come to him and say, Could you give us some peace and get rid of this lady? And after the, their short interaction, Jesus is impressed by her faith, and he heals the woman's daughter from, from demonic oppression. So again, we see demonic oppression. And then he responds to her faith in a similar way that he'd responded to the blind man's faith. Right? He said to them, according to your faith, let it be done to her. And, and to, her, to her, he says, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. Continuing on, Matthew chapter 20. So hopefully you're seeing these connections here and and the connections between the son of David and these, these healings and these exorcisms. Matthew chapter 20, another close parallel to today's story, starting at verse 29. It says, As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. 
And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So twice they call him the son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So again, we have two blind men. And the double repetition of this phrase, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, here it's interesting because the last story, the, the disciples were ready to rebuke this woman. And now we have the whole crowd wanting to rebuke these guys. We're not sure why. Maybe it's because they were just loud and obnoxious. Or maybe they were saying something like, how dare you call him the son of David? Do you know what you're saying when you call him the son of David? That's a big claim. And they rebuke him. Jesus has pity on them. He restores their sight. And and rather than like the other two blind men who went out and started spreading his fame, they get up and they... Follow Jesus, which is what the book of Matthew is all about, about following Jesus. Now finally, the last, whoop, never mind, second to last, the triumphal entry, Matthew chapter 21, 9 to 15. This is a well-known story. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now Now the crowds are shouting this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Skip down to verse 14, where it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So here we have now for the first time, not just some individuals calling Jesus son of David, but now we have the entire crowd who who a moment of chapter before was rebuking these two blind men who were saying son of David. Now the entire crowd is saying, Hosanna, son of David, proclaiming him to be the son of David in verse 9. And then in verse 15, out of this crowd in the temple, we have children crying out, Hosanna, son of David. Jesus, between these two texts, cleanses the temple. And then in the temple, who comes to him? The blind and the lame. Remember Isaiah 35 where the blind will see and the lame and will leap for joy. These are the ones who come now to Jesus and are healed. And again, the story ends with opposition. The religious leaders standing up and say, hey, hey, put a, put a stop to this. You can't allow them to do this, rebuking the crowds and the children and Jesus himself. Now, the final instance of this title, the Son of David in Matthew, comes in Matthew 22, which we won't look into uh, because it's more, it's more of an indirect reference where Jesus actually has the Pharisees calling the Messiah the Son of David. Then he has a little bit of a debate with them about whose son is the Messiah. Is he David's son or is he, is he David's Lord? 
He makes some connections there about the son of David. So now we have all this in mind. We've looked at every instance where this title is used in Matthew. And I think we can recognize some things about Jesus' identity as the son of David. First, Jesus, like David, is a warrior king. Jesus, or David was the great warrior king of Israel, the one who slew tens of thousands, who came and broadened the, the, the territory of Israel into its golden age. And in five different stories that we just looked at, accounting for seven of the nine occurrences of Jesus being called Son of David, five of these stories are connected with healing, and in particular, with blindness. Three of them deal with deliverance from demonic oppression. So you see the pattern here. There's healing and there's deliverance from demonic oppression. This is the work of the warrior king, the son of David, who is coming and in his healing ministry, bringing an all-out assault on the kingdom of darkness. Like David, the warrior king of Israel, Jesus, Jesus has come in battle, but not to overthrow the Roman occupiers, but a battle which is much more serious against a much more nefarious and subtle enemy, Satan himself, and the kingdom of darkness. And against the kingdom of darkness, Jesus is opening up eyes and bringing light and undoing the works of that kingdom. Jesus is a warrior king. When you call him son of David, you're talking about a warrior who has come to do battle and has won. Secondly, Jesus, like David, is a shepherd king. You go back to that story, our original story in Matthew chapter 9. The two stories of the, the, blind, the two blind men and then the, the, the mute demon-possessed man, they culminate in a summary statement of, of what Jesus in his ministry has done so far. So look at verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when he was addressing the the Canaanite woman, you remember him saying, I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As the son of David, I've come as a shepherd, but only for certain people. Then we see it's not just for certain people. Before he was a warrior, David was a shepherd. We know the story of David, the shepherd boy who came and defeated Goliath. And then throughout the Old Testament, when King David is spoken about, he's not only spoken of as a king, but as a shepherd. One scholar, Wayne Baxter, points out that the the son of David imagery likely comes, some of it, from Ezekiel chapter 34, in which God promised to shepherd his people through a David-like shepherd king, a king who would bring healing, a king king who would feed his flocks, a king who who would bring justice to his oppressed and malnourished sheep. And as the son of David, Jesus is the shepherd king who shows mercy and shows compassion to his sheep. Four times in these stories, Jesus is called upon to show mercy. Son of David, show mercy four times. And he does 
so. In chapter 20, verse 34, we read that, that Jesus extended pity to those who are suffering. Like a shepherd who cares for his flock. The word pity that's used there in, in chapter 20, verse 34, is the same word that's used for compassion in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The same word that gets used when Jesus feeds his sheep, 5,000 of them in particular, in Matthew chapter 14. Then a whole chapter later, he feeds another 4,000 of his sheep on the hillsides with those great miracles of feeding of the multitudes. Jesus, like David, is a warrior king. Jesus, like David, is a shepherd king. And Jesus, like David, is both recognized and opposed. So the, so the final piece of this puzzle of Jesus as the son of David comes in his recognition and in his opposition. Recall that, that King David was, was hunted by his enemies. He was opposed by King Saul, hunted down, even by those who were closest to him. And likewise, Jesus here is opposed by the religious authorities who who display a stubborn, upside-down, absurdly opposite view of Jesus' identity and his mission. As he brings light, they're saying, you're really bringing darkness. Jesus and David were both opposed, but conversely, David and Jesus were both recognized by the outcasts of society. By the nobodies, by the oppressed, by the cripples, by the humble, by the blind, by the mute, by the deaf, by foreigners, by the sick, and even by children. So as the son of David, and thus the the Messiah, the king, Jesus is really enacting the reality of his unexpected kingdom. And like the shepherd warrior King David, he is assaulting the kingdom of darkness by turning on its head and reversing sickness, showing mercy and compassion to the oppressed, throwing out demons, freeing the captives, and exalting the lowly while opposing the proud. Jesus is the true son of David. So what can we take away from all this. It's great to, to look at Jesus and see who he is as the warrior king, the shepherd king. First of all, I would say this, that to take away and, and to walk out of here and grasp this truth is crucial, that we are in a spiritual battle. And Jesus, the warrior king, has already won the war. Amen. However, when you look at the world, it doesn't seem like he's winning at all. In fact, it seems like the forces of darkness and evil and sin and violence and wickedness, it seems like they reign and are having a heyday. But for those who would follow Jesus in faith, that is with with hearts like those blind men who see reality for what it really is, Our calling is actually to go and gather the spoils. We'll see that in in next week's story. It's it's to engage the battle against a defeated enemy. 
That's a whole, that's a whole different story than a, than a war that we're not sure we're going to win. We, we know that the battle has been won and all will be made right in the end. And I want to encourage you by faith today to recognize that things are not always as they appear. So as we walk out of these doors and we engage in a spiritual battle, engage it in faith, knowing that he has sent us out to reap the rewards, to go into a harvest that is plentiful where the laborers are few. Second takeaway is that as the shepherd king, I just want us all to hear this morning that Jesus has mercy and compassion on you. He pities you. He loves you. He's moved in the depths of his being by his love for you. And when Jesus opened blind eyes, when he opened mute mouths, the the result, as Isaiah 35 foretold, the, the result of this opening was for blind people to see his glory and for mute mouths to proclaim his glory with joy. And sometimes the greatest way to engage in spiritual battle by spiritual battle underneath our shepherd king who pities us and loves us and frees us, the the greatest way to engage in spiritual battle is to respond to Jesus by proclaiming his praises and rejoicing in him for what he has done, the mercy he has shown to you. I love 1 Peter, and we'll end with this, 1 Peter 2.9. You, brothers and sisters, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're not nobody. We are someone because God has put his grace and favor and chosen us as a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we live in the light, brothers and sisters, let's proclaim the light. Let's proclaim our shepherd and warrior king, the son of David, the only one who saves and the only one who has authority to bring his kingdom into this world. He's chosen to do it through us, his church. As you come to communion this morning, that's what I would call you to, is to be reminded, no matter what, that Jesus, your king, loves you. He has mercy on you. He has pity and compassion on you, so much so that he went to a cross to take on your punishment that you deserve to pay for your sins so that you might be brought into his kingdom. He loves you, and so followers of Jesus, believers in Christ by faith, come and partake of the table and be reminded of your great warrior shepherd king's love for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are... Hopefully astounded this morning by your word and and the beauty of who you are that's displayed for us in this gospel of Matthew, showing over and over from beginning to end that you, Jesus, are the son of David, that you are the conquering warrior king who's overcome the who's overcome the kingdom of darkness and has brought in the kingdom of light. We recognize that, God. We recognize that you are our shepherd king who loves us, who shows compassion to us, who frees us, who opens our eyes, who opens our mouths to praise you, who gives us faith that we might believe and trust you. So Jesus, this morning, move our hearts to believe. 
Move our hearts to be open to who you are. Move our hearts to faith and and move our hearts to obedience as we go from here. May we be like those two blind men who could not hold it in, the great things that you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we pray this all in your name and for your glory.